I want to go ahead and dismiss our kids for Children's Church. And uh, we are going to be receiving communion again today. And it's been a joy to have some of the kids coming back in to receive communion. So they're always welcome to do that at the end of the service, parents, if you desire to go get them and bring them. We are in this Easter season, as Danny reminded us, and we are celebrating. So keep smiling, people. Keep smiling. And uh, we are uh, trying to to help this along in our final installment in this series on the Gospel of John as we're celebrating that Jesus, our Messiah, is alive. And we're remembering that all the things that John wrote down were so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, we might have life. And one of the things that we are invited to believe in Him is that He rose from the dead that he is alive today and uh, we can worship him and know that he is our Messiah. Jesus is alive. Because he lives, things are different. So we've been looking at these, what are known as the resurrection appearances of Jesus over the last few weeks. We looked at Mary Magdalene a couple of weeks ago and how Jesus spoke her name, called her by name, brought her out of despair Uh, called her and sent her to be the apostle to the apostles to announce that he indeed was alive. We watched last week as Jesus came and met with the disciples and he breathed on them and he equipped them and empowered them and sent them out to be his hands and feet in the world. We've watched as these encounters that Jesus has been having with with his followers have been very, very significant. In case you're curious, in case you're interested, the the Apostle Paul does go on to write in 1 Corinthians, or we go on to read, uh, that that Jesus appeared to Peter and to the 12. So the Apostle Paul confirms this. And actually the 11, but, but Paul writes the 12. Then Paul goes on to say that he appeared to over 500 of the brothers at one time. And, and, and to, and to uh, Mary as well, and to others, to James, and again to all the apostles. And the other gospels as well, they report these other appearances that Jesus uh, did to folks uh, after his resurrection, to other um, women, Matthew reports, other women along with Mary, and Luke reports the two walking on the road to Emmaus. Some of you maybe remember this. So, so this whole idea of Jesus showing himself to people after his resurrection was, was a very important theme in the Gospels. And they've been important to us now because, as Becky said last week, they document on the one hand that, that Jesus really did come alive. He really did and was raised from the dead. It wasn't a figment of the disciples' imagination. It wasn't just that he was alive in their hearts somehow or that this was like a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling that they had that he was really alive, just in some sort of spiritual sense. No, he, he showed himself bodily, physically. It's very important that we believe it and know that Jesus was raised from the dead. The appearances are also important, we have said, because they give us some idea today how the risen Jesus and the alive Jesus desires to interact with his people. Through the presence of his Holy Spirit, we've heard it maybe said of people that as they acted then is how they will act now. 
And it's true, we can surmise of Jesus as well. As he acted with these folks just after his resurrection are the same ways in which he desires to act and interact with his people in this period of history as well as throughout eternity. So we have some great indications of of who Jesus is for us, even in these days, as how we see him, by how we see him interacting with these folks in these post-resurrection appearances. He is alive. And today we get to read of another encounter between the risen Jesus and one of his closest followers, albeit one who is having what seems to have started out as a bit of a bad day. And uh, so you can turn with me, John chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 24 through 29. John 20 Verses 24 to 29. Let's stand together as I read this. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came the week before on on Easter Sunday, the first Easter Sunday. They, the disciples, other disciples, told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Now, I don't know how you do it, but usually in my mind and a lot of people that I talk with, when we think about the disciples, we usually rank them in order from the bottom up. We really don't know a whole lot about a lot of the disciples, and when we don't hear anything about them, we just tend to imagine that they were good guys. So the ones that we don't hear a whole lot about, we just assume that they must have been pretty good. They didn't really ever get in trouble. So usually what we hear about of the disciples is when they were doing something kind of silly, or just downright dumb, or just wrong. And, and so we rate our disciples from the bottom up, starting at 12 with Judas. I mean, we, we start with Judas, and, and he's kind of the easy go-to here, but he's the betrayer, the one who sold out Jesus to the religious, religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver, the one who betrayed Jesus with a kiss. The one who, one of the Gospels tells us, actually initiated this betrayal of Jesus. He was the one who went to the religious leaders and said, I got an idea here. What do you think? I mean, it just doesn't get much lower than this. And it didn't go well for Judas either. And so he is number 12. Now, number 11 maybe is up for debate some, but I'm going to suggest it's Peter. Now, Peter turns out to be a pretty amazing guy. I mean, like the... The, the rock on which Christ would build his church is not a bad commendation. But, but there were times for Peter earlier in Jesus' ministry and then in their interaction when he had some rough spots. He was always putting his foot in his mouth. He was jumping out of boats, trying to walk on water. He was sinking. He was telling Jesus that he wouldn't let him wash his feet. And then he was saying, okay, wash all of me. And Jesus was like, easy there, tiger. 
and he was doing all sorts of interesting things, but his really, his low point, which earns him the number 11 ranking, is his denial of Jesus. After he had told Jesus that I will go to the death with you, I will die for you, I will die with you, whatever it takes, I'm there. When the rubber hit the road, when it was time to put up or shut up, he shut up, and he did not affirm his relationship with Jesus. In fact, he denied him not once, not twice, but three times. So in my mind, that gets him the number 11 ranking. So coming in third place or 10th then for most is like the disciple we've read about today. We don't hear a whole lot about Thomas in the Gospels other than this point. He speaks up a little bit in John 11. Actually, when Jesus wants to go back and, and bring Lazarus to, the, to life from the dead, Thomas says, well, let's just go with him and die. That, that, those were his words. Let's go back to Judea and just die with Jesus. It'll be great. Really optimistic. And, uh, and he speaks up a little bit in chapter 14 as well when Jesus says, you know, I'm the way. Do you know the way? And Thomas says, no, we don't know the way. You've got to tell us. And to which Jesus responds with those famous words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we haven't heard a whole lot about Thomas until this section. And now he just bursts onto the scene. And whether it's fair or not, knowing so little about Thomas as we do, he, he falls for most people just a little bit behind Judas and Peter, not because he was a betrayer or a denier of Jesus, but because he was a doubter. He's a doubter. Doubting Thomas. You could go out into the world today, out into the city, out into the culture, to your friends maybe who have never even read the Bible, and you could say, don't be a doubting Thomas, and they would know what you're talking about. They, they wouldn't know that you were referring to a biblical character, perhaps, but they would know that you're speaking about doubting, just this, this way of thinking, this way of, of not believing. It's, it's interesting how Thomas has worked his way into our culture. And, and so this whole idea, no one calls Peter denying Peter. I don't understand why Thomas necessarily got stuck with this, but it does have a certain ring. Doubting Thomas. It just flows in many ways off of our lips. Just his luck to not be with the rest of the disciples when Jesus first appeared to them. I mean, how did he miss that one? You want to talk about good things happening to people who show up. And bad things happen to people who don't show up. I don't want to go to that side, but this is what happens to Thomas. I mean, was he trying to sleep off the weekend, you know, it had been really bad, and so I'm just going to go to bed and not wake up. Jesus has been crucified. I Just don't bother me. Or was he so scared that he was holed up in his own little place and unwilling or afraid to join with the other disciples? We're not exactly sure why he wasn't there, but he wasn't there when Jesus first showed up to the rest of the disciples on that first Easter Sunday to reveal himself, to, to show himself to them. Just imagine that you're Thomas, the resurrected Jesus, shows up to the rest of the church, and you're not there. One commentator said it like this, This is, at first, surely the single most inopportunely or perhaps even irresponsibly missed meeting in church history. You don't want to miss church. As I was reading this story, it reminded me of an article I had read recently, uh, not long ago, 
uh, about declining church attendance in the United States in particular. Some of the reasons for the trends towards declining church attendance that honestly hasn't completely escaped Coast Community. But the authors suggest that the decline is not due to people necessarily leaving their churches completely, but, but just to people attending their churches less frequently. And he did the math. I had never quite done the math, but he did. And he says that if a church has 200 people and everybody shows up every Sunday for a month, they average 200. But listen to this. I, I actually got that math. That's pretty good. 200 They all show the average 200. Yeah, I I had that one. But listen to this. If only half of those attenders miss, one out of the month's four weeks, average attendance drops to 175. It's interesting how just half of the people missing just one day drops the whole month's average by that much. Now, you may not care about average attendance. I kind of do because I sense it's one way to track how we're doing as a local church and how participated participative we are in worship. And so I pay attention to some of that stuff. The article goes on. The author shares five ways that churches can respond to this trend. Now, I'm not going to share these five ways with you because I, you know, I don't want you to know what we're doing to you uh, to try to get you to come to church more often. It's kind of a secret. But, but one day you'll be here like four Sundays in a row and you'll think, what's going on around here? What did they do differently? Because I'm actually here. Uh, I'm not going to share that with you, but it, it was all very practical, very helpful and good. But as I thought about this list of five, I, I couldn't help but think about John, John's Gospel's list of one. Like We can do all these five things and many more to try to get people to show up for church. Or we can just say, Jesus is there. And we'll be meeting with God's people in a unique and special way. He can meet with you individually without a doubt, but he'll be meeting with God's people as they gather in this place in a unique and special way, and you might just not want to miss it. I was thinking about just adding that, so now there's six. There's five, and number six, Jesus actually will show up. Anyway, to make matters worse for Thomas, the other disciples tell him what had happened, that they'd seen the Lord. He just doesn't believe them. I mean, he doesn't even, he's not even curious. He's not even like, well, really, tell me about this. There's no interest. He's adamant. Lest I touch his hands, see his hands, lest I put my hands on his side, I'm not going to believe it. I won't believe it until I see him with my own eyes. Touch him with my own hands. And you have known people like this, perhaps? Let's be honest. You have been people like this, perhaps? The disciples, we're proud of them, aren't we? We should be. They've done their job. Just the week before, Jesus has said, tell people that you've seen the Lord, and they do it to their own disciple brother who wasn't there. It was a start. I mean, it wasn't like really you know, going out into the world or anything, but it was going to their disciple brother and saying, we've seen the Lord. They've done their job, what they've been commissioned to do. These just recently filled with the Holy Spirit apostles now give this spirit-empowered witness. And what happens? Nothing. Thomas doesn't believe. Ah, just a little side note. Does that mean that their witness wasn't effective, do you think? No, I don't think so at all. It doesn't mean that their witness wasn't effective. It wasn't spirit-empowered. It wasn't important. Their witness was to say that they have seen the Lord. 
their witness was not to erase the doubts and the, and the lack of faith in Thomas. That is Jesus' job. Many of us look at Thomas, though, in these moments, and I know I do, as I've looked at this story over and over, and I, my first reaction, every time I read this, I, even though I know what's coming, my first reaction every time I read this is, dude, what's your problem? Well, I mean, just, these are your, these are your brothers. They're, they're telling you the truth. Why can't you see that? Why can't you know that? Why would they lie about this? How could all of them make it up and come to this? I mean, how could they keep their story straight in saying this to you? What is your problem? Interestingly, though, others among us and throughout history have no doubt looked at Thomas and said, perhaps a little more quietly, but they said, thank you, Thomas. Thanks for asking. Thanks for checking, Thomas. For those for whom faith doesn't come quite so easily, for those for whom tactile proof is just what you needed, for all of us like that, Thomas takes the hit. Through all of history, he takes the hit for you and for me, and he asks the question. And so many of us, in fact, perhaps all of us, ought to say, thanks, Thomas. Thanks for asking the hard questions. Thanks for standing your ground. Thanks for your doubt. And it begins to maybe dawn on us right here in this moment that perhaps this story is in the Bible even, that John, as he was thinking about these stories that he wanted to include in his gospel, and as he's writing them down, perhaps he thinks that he's going to include this story in the Bible not so that generations of people from there on could look back and just mock Thomas and think about how wrong and bad and how he ranked number 10 on the list of disciples and all these things, but instead so that they might have someone to identify with. We begin to see here that Thomas's doubt is expressed not so that we might think of it as a bad thing, something to be denied, something to be chased out of any well-meaning follower or seeker of Jesus, but as a reality of the human condition as a reality of who we are, where we've been, where we will be, something to be given some space, some respect, and some time. Our student ministry has been going through a series in recent weeks called Can I Ask That? And on Sunday nights, our junior high and senior high have been gathering here and and just been approaching a variety of different hot topics in culture and in the church. And while some guidance has been given to that. The, the primary goal of this series has simply been to give our students some, some space to, to think about these issues and to reflect on them in a safe environment and to think about how our culture has influenced our thinking on these things and about what the Bible really has to say about these issues and so we can, we can process through them. Our leaders have not attempted so much to provide all of the answers to all of the questions so much as they have worked to make sure all of our students know the answer to the main question. Can I ask that? And the answer is yes. 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 You can and you should and you must ask these questions. Can I ask about the authority of the Bible? Yes. Absolutely. 
Can I ask about the role of women in ministry? Yes, absolutely. Can I ask about homosexuality? Yes. Can I ask about the relationship between faith and science? Yes, ask. Ask these questions. You can ask. And ask them here. It's even better because these are places where we can have safe conversations. See, the Bible's inclusion of this story, John's portrayal of Thomas's doubt opens the door. It opens the door wide to our questions, giving space, even room for our doubt as well. And so we say, thanks, Thomas. Thank you, Thomas. There's more to the story, though, and we need to be clear that not only does Thomas's story remind us that there is room for doubt in our lives, but that it also reminds us of our capacity for great faith. Eight days later, we're told Jesus shows up in this room, the same place, right into the midst of them. Jesus, this is a Christ-centered worship service, if there ever was one. He's right in the middle of them as they gather in this place. This spirit-empowered, sent group of disciples still meeting behind locked doors. That just kind of cracks me up. But, but there they are. And Jesus comes right in this place. Eight days later actually means to us seven days later. Uh, in, in the ancient times, the ancients counted the present day as the first. So here Jesus is again showing up on Sunday. It's not me, friends. It's John. It's, blame it on John. He's the one telling you to keep coming back to church. He's the one saying that Sunday is a special day to gather with God's people. And don't you think that Thomas was glad he was here this day? I, maybe he's like, well, I don't know, but I guess I'll go this time. And he's there, and suddenly Jesus is standing in their midst. And don't you think in that moment, he was like, man, I am so glad I got out of bed. Jesus goes straight to him. Peace be with you. That's Jesus' greeting every time he shows up, it seems like now. Peace be with you. And then he heads straight for Thomas. No ritual, no ceremony, no nothing. Just goes right to him. And interestingly, as you notice, as we read the, the, the scripture, he, he goes right to Thomas's lingo, right to his language, as if he knew what Thomas had been thinking. Because he had. And he says, here's my hand. Touch it. Here's my side. Touch it. Look at me. See me. Touch me. Know that I am alive. Knowing what Thomas was thinking, here Jesus reaches to him to do exactly what Thomas said he needed to have done so that he could believe. Here's Jesus again as he's done time and time before, reaching exactly to where the people need him. Scratching Thomas's doubt itch right as Thomas needed him to do. Look right at my hands. See the scars. Touch this wound right here on my side, my friend. Yes, it hurt. Yes, it ended my life. Yes, I did it all for you. And now I'm here again. I'm alive. So don't be faithless anymore. Don't doubt anymore, Thomas. Believe. Believe. Exclamation point. Believe. Jesus is extremely patient with Thomas as he is with each of us in our seasons of doubt and questioning. He takes his time. He gives, his, he gives us space. He respects our questions. He respects our doubt for sure. But he is unwilling, as he was with Thomas, to allow us to remain there. As much as he gives us space for our questions and doubts, there is no doubt, as this story shows us, that he ultimately calls us and believes 
that we have in us a capacity for great faith in him. Not just even mediocre faith, not just kind of faith, not just sort of faith, but great faith as Thomas, this one who has become known worldwide and throughout history as the doubter. This reputation that has been just clinging to him throughout history, this this nickname that has stuck to him throughout all these years now demonstrates that even those with the greatest of doubts can become those who express the greatest declarations of faith. My Lord and my God. Did you hear it? And we're, we're supposed to, if you have your Bible there in front of you, we're supposed to at this moment, when we read him say that, my Lord and my God, we're supposed to stop. I... I I just know we are because I do it every time and I know that we're supposed to stop and we're supposed to think to ourselves, did he just say what I think he said? Because I've never heard it before. Nowhere in all the Gospels has anyone called Jesus God. John himself at the beginning of this Gospel came the closest when he said the word is flesh or the word became, uh, no, the word was with God and was God and is God. But now it's Thomas face to face looking right at Jesus and saying, my Lord and my God. The greatest declaration, greatest exclamation of faith that the New Testament, that the whole Bible perhaps even knows coming from a human person, this faith in Jesus. We're meant to look back. Did I read that right? We're meant to go back and read it again and again. Did he just call him what I think he called him? Nobody had ever done it, but Thomas did. Here's Thomas, again, even in his doubt, even in his uncertainty, now proclaiming his confidence in the risen Lord. Now, this isn't an invitation or an encouragement by any means to go out and just stir up some doubt in your brain or in your heart. That would be reckless, I believe, on my part. So by no means am I saying that if you don't have any doubts or any concerns in your faith, if everything is great, I am not saying go out and stir up some doubt. I thought of Paul's words, speaking of grace, another place, to just change that a little bit where we would say, should we go on doubting so that faith will abound? No, we should not go on doubting or commit ourselves to being more doubtful people so that we can have greater faith in, in the end run. You don't have to go through a great crisis of doubt to have a solid faith today. But what I want you to know is that if that doubt comes, there is room for it in this life of faith. And if you'll hold on, I believe that Jesus too will hold on. And he'll respond to us and interact with us and lead us in a way that will bring us to a greater faith than we've ever known. Hans Kung, one of the great theologians of the church, writes these words. A little bit long, but hear it all. Questions of faith are not like riddles and crossword puzzles. You Sudoku people in the room, take note. You crossword people, folks, take note. Faith is not like this. With things of this sort, puzzles, it may take one some time to find the solution, but once it's found, everything is clear and simple. It's completely different with the faith. Here we have, he writes, not human truth which men can state and understand, but God's truth, which goes far beyond any statement or understanding of man's. 
He suggests the faith never becomes clear. The faith remains obscure. Not until we enter into glory will it be otherwise. Quoting Paul, we see now through a glass in a dark manner, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. Only when we are in glory will it be otherwise. Until then, there will always be more difficulties coming up, more doubts coming up. There are bound to be. We're told, interestingly, about Thomas that he was a twin. Thomas Didymus, which means the twin. And, and this has been a point of great discussion and just research into this this disciple, Thomas. What does that mean? A, a twin of who? Was, was he literally a twin? Was he born? And twins in the room just, you know, feel empowered. You've got a disciple that was like you. Uh, was, he, was he, some suggest that he, it was a nickname that he picked up because maybe he looked a little bit like Jesus. He was a twin to Jesus. And, and they said, hey, he looks like Jesus. We'll call him Jesus' twin. Thomas the twin. Um... Others have said maybe that he had a twin. or I, I, I kind of like to think maybe, and I'm not sure this is where it originally came from, but I like to think of it like this, that, that he's my twin, and he's your twin, and he's all of our twin. That we too mirror this, this life of question and doubt and uncertainty, but we too all have this great capacity for faith. Tradition tells us that Thomas went on to become one of the greatest missionaries in the church of Jesus Christ. That uh, India, in fact, claims him as their, their main guy that brought the work of Jesus and the message of the gospel to that nation. And, and other places in between that he touched as he moved out into mission for the world. And so I even like to think that that perhaps we're a little bit of a twin like him in our capacity, not only for faith, but our capacity for mission and where God might even lead us in days to come. But there's one interesting way in which we are not twins with Thomas. And it's the last uh, point that Jesus makes here. And it's this idea that whereas, Jesus, whereas Thomas had the advantage of seeing Jesus up close, we don't. We were not twins with Thomas in the fact that he got to see Jesus and personally, and, and we don't. Jesus calls out thus in this passage, blessing on us who will come after Thomas and the other apostles and believe because of what they have seen in Jesus. You know, we believe in Jesus for a few different reasons. One, many of us, we believe because we believe the Bible, believe that it's God's inspired word. Others of us, we, we particularly hold on to the fact that the Holy Spirit has spoken into our hearts, has confirmed and affirmed our faith. But, but largely, and this has been true for Christians for centuries, we believe because Thomas believed. We believe because the original apostles believed. And they passed what they believed on to this next generation of believers. And then they passed it on to the next generation and, and so we're, and it got passed on and passed on until it's come to us. And so we're not, it's just a very important thing to remember that we're not just believing in some like fairy tale. We're believing in some information that has been passed on. It's called the apostolic faith. And we even read about it this morning, the Apostles' Creed that was penned to 
to really capture the faith of those early apostles. And we believe because they believe. And it helps me to know, as I believe, that one who believed didn't believe at first. Is that too many believes for you? Does it help you to know that there's one among that crowd that was like, I'm not so sure about this. And yet he came to great faith and great belief. Many of you know that I have a son named Thomas. And I told him that I was going to talk about him this morning. So now he's just getting fairly uncomfortable, but that's okay. Um, When he was getting ready to be born, we had a few different names on on the ready. Uh, If he was a girl, it definitely would not have been Thomas. Uh, And and I think we had Jared was one maybe in the running. We had a few others in the running. Um, Great, great good names. But in the end, it was Thomas. I'm sorry, in the beginning of, yeah, it it was Thomas. And there were several reasons, several factors playing into this. One was that I was was a big Magnum PI fan in the 80s. (laughs) And Thomas Magnum is like one of my heroes. And I've patterned my life in many ways after him. Um, no, kind of, kind of. Um, so, so that was playing into it a little bit. There are also great theologians and leaders in the church. Thomas Aquinas, maybe some of you have heard of him, just a great father in the church and scholar, academic, but great pastor. Uh, Thomas Merton was a spiritual writer that I had been reading a lot of at the time Thomas was born. So, and several, Thomas Kelly, there's several other Thomases in the history of the church that were just really prevalent. And uh, so it was really weighing in on me. But really, uh, to be perfectly honest, to seal the deal was Thomas the disciple. It really was. And, and, and I can't remember how many people, when they first heard the name of our young son, their first reaction was, ah, doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. And raised eyebrows. And why do you want your son to be a doubter? And, and, and I remember thinking about that when we named Thomas. Thomas. And my greatest hopes being that my son would come to a point in his life where he would, he would be able to wrestle and assess and look at and, and think and reason and, and not just believe because his mom and dad believed and not just believe because that's what good church boys do and it's kind of what he's supposed to become, but, but that he would come to a point in a time in his life where he would believe because he believed. Because Jesus had shown himself to him in a real way and then and my, my greatest hope for my son is that he would have, and I believed this even on the day that he was conceived, that he would have a great capacity for faith. And I continue to pray that Thomas would have just a great capacity for faith. Well, I just tell you a story. It's a little bit personal, but I say it to you because it's really my hope and my prayer for each of you. And it's my belief for all of us here this morning that we would be people who don't just believe because we're supposed to. That we don't just kind of go through the motions and, yeah, okay, I I believe that and that's good and take it all in and just kind of keep going. But there would be people who would would approach this from a thoughtful place and that we'd be able to wrestle with the doubts or concerns or questions that we have and that we'd be able to come out on the other side with a new, refreshed faith and a capacity for an even greater faith than you might ever believe is possible. Let's pray together. Thank you. Thank you, God, for these resurrection appearances. 
And thank you. I'll have the worship team come right over here so I can serve you first. Thanks, guys. Thank you for Thomas and for all that he represents to us today. Thank you that he opens the door for our own doubts, for our own questions, for our own wrestling. And thank you that he shows the way to a capacity for faith that perhaps we could have never thought possible in us. May we too be people who would say, my Lord and my God. And I think in particular about the Lord's table today as we come, this open table that we invite all to come to, regardless of the wrestling, the doubts that are in our hearts and in our heads as we seek after Jesus, as we seek after his truth, what a great place to come today. And as I think about each of us taking the bread and maybe hearing in our, our minds and at the deepest parts of our hearts, Jesus whispering to you, touch, touch me, touch my body. And as we dip it in the cup to hear him saying, see me, touch me, taste me, know me. And in these moments of, of communion with you and with one another, Lord Jesus, to not only remember what you have done, but to believe in what you will do in us and through us as we move in faith. So thank you that you broke bread and you gave it to your disciples and you said, this is my body broken for you. Eat of it and each time you do, remember me. And thank you that you passed the cup the same way. and that This is the cup that represents my blood shed for you, for your forgiveness. Take and drink of it, and each time you do, remember me. And so as we eat and as we drink, we remember and help us to believe. We pray this in your name.